When I first went overseas as a missionary, uh, I was tasked with leading a a one-year missions team. Uh, We were doing campus ministry, so evangelism and discipleship with college students. And I was told that I needed to lead this missions team as well as recruit the ones that would follow in the subsequent years. So so that meant I I had to go back to the U.S. and actually went to Korea as well to speak on college campuses and recruit the students to come and do missions work. Uh, So I went on a number of these trips, uh, and I learned an interesting lesson as I did it. So so year one, I went and I talked about the need that was there to share Christ with these students, and I, I shared the encouraging things that were happening. But I also talked about how great the food was. So I talked about the fried dumplings, the goitia that you could buy at the back gates of the university. I talked about the, the lamb skewers, the yang rochar, and of course the, the kung pao chicken, my favorite. And I also talked about how much fun we had in the, in the dormitories as we would meet students by, I like chess, we would play uh, Chinese chess with them and, and wei qi. Uh, I talked about meeting students playing basketball, and the recruiting went great. We had had a lot of people come join us that following summer, a lot of people sign up to come over for the next year. But I I noticed something about this crop of people who came over. They were very excited about the the cross-cultural experience that they would have and the fun ministry of meeting students. But after the first month or so, after the novelty kind of wore off and the excitement, these folks started struggling. The weather was turning colder, and meeting students was less about playing games and more about sitting on cold stone benches, having the the same conversation you've had dozens of times already. And at the student cafeteria, what we were eating was something scooped out of a a large vat onto a metal tray, and it wasn't Kung Pao chicken. So I had some unhappy recruits. The next year, I changed my strategy. So I still talked about the dorms, but I talked this time about how the hot water usually didn't work. And as the winter came on, you kept having to go down successive floors to find the hot water, because it didn't make it all the way up. And I talked about uh, the instant noodles that would be their meals a lot of times. I even may have mentioned that when you keep styrofoam things of instant noodles in your dorm room, sometimes the rats would come and nibble their way through to get to the noodles. And my strategy worked. Because the people who came the following year adjusted their expectations a little better. The people who came were more excited about the ministry and less excited about the food. You know, I think expectations have a huge role to play in our life as Christians. I think they're hugely important. You and I need to understand what to expect as we follow Jesus. And I can say that with confidence because the Apostle Paul, as he went about on his missionary journeys, you you know how Luke in Acts summarizes his preaching tour, one one of his missionary journeys. He summarizes his preaching this way. 
Paul would say, through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. Now, now that's not an easy thing to, you know, churches package their sermon series. I don't know how you package that one. But Paul really wanted these new churches and these new believers to know what they were in for. As we continue our study in the book of Exodus this morning, we pick up the Israelites at a fascinating time. They've just been delivered from Egypt in the most miraculous way possible. They go from impending death and destruction at the hands of Pharaoh's army to standing on the opposite shore of the Red Sea, looking at the corpses of their enemies washing up on the shore. And they're literally singing and dancing as Miriam composes their national song. They're free. They're delivered. What would their expectations have been like after seeing such victory, such support from the Lord? It's easy for us to picture them riding high. Okay, God, we're ready for this promised land and all the flowing with milk and honey stuff. Bring it on. Well, in between them and the promised land was hardship, even as it is for you and I. Our text is going to teach us that we should expect hardship. But more importantly, that God intends to use that hardship for his good purposes in our lives. God uses trials to test his children for their good and his glory. And that'll be the main idea of our time this morning. You may want to jot that down if you're taking notes so you can talk about it later over lunch. God tests his children for their good and his glory. We'll consider that in three points First, the testing of obedience, the testing of obedience. Secondly, the testing of trust, the testing of trust. And then third and finally, the testing of our hearts, the testing of our hearts. It's my prayer that our study will help us to better set our expectations of relating to God and better see his love for us in the testing he has us walk through. So Exodus chapter 15, you may want to turn in your copy of God's Word if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. I think it's on page 54, and you'll be helped. We have some big chunks that we're going to be walking through. I've decided to read it all. We're told to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, so here we go. Point number one, the testing of obedience. Let's look at chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. 
for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. All right, the testing of obedience. Our text begins here with Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And it, it says that because they wouldn't have wanted to leave after the spiritual high that they've been through. But they had to because God didn't intend merely to rescue them from slavery. He intended to bring them to the promised land. And on the way, they needed to go to Mount Sinai to receive the law. That's where we're headed in Exodus. So, so maybe reluctantly, but, but probably confident. They have the pillar of cloud as their guidance system. And they know God's presence means they can beat any enemies. But we also have to picture the road ahead because it's straight out into the wilderness. I mean, this is the setting for the next 40 years of Israel's life. Picture semi-arid, scarcely inhabited land. Lots of sand, some vegetation here and there. Any, any people you encounter are nomadic. You, you can't settle down because you, you have to move towards water and food constantly. Now, they have some supplies probably, but th those are going to dwindle quickly, and water dwindles the quickest. Now, I'm speaking mostly to Singaporeans who know a thing or two about water, don't you? I, I was on the Public Utility Board's website uh, they tell me that we need 430 million gallons of water a day to keep Singapore going. And they also tell me that I'm not doing my part. Uh, do, you, do you get on your utility bill kind of what the average household does and then what your household does? That's a discouraging bill for me to get. So you, we need to conserve water, okay? But, but even if they conserved water, you, you better replenish your supply, right? You can picture them on day three starting to worry. I mean, they probably told themselves, okay, Moses has to have a plan. I mean, he meets with God. There, there's a plan here, right? Verse 23 there actually narrates things backwards because they show up at a place that doesn't have a name, but there's water. And you can picture the relief of seeing it. They run up to take a drink to, to refill their, their skins of water. And then they drink it, and then you just picture them spitting it out. Have you ever, you ever tried to take a, a mouthful of salt water into your mouth? Well, that's what it was like for them. So they, this brackish, undrinkable water causes them to name the place Mera. It means bitter in Hebrew. You may remember in the book of Ruth, Naomi wants to rename her, herself Mera because of how bitterly her life has turned out. Now, they do something here that, that actually becomes a dangerous habit for them. They, they grumble against Moses. They turn on their leader. I don't know why we as humans tend to do that, even when we should know that it's not the leader's fault. Well, Moses is a good leader here because he gets criticized and he takes it right to God. That's a wonderful leadership lesson. He's not always going to do it that well. But here, he takes it to God. God shows him a log to throw in the water, and the water becomes sweet. 
Now, if you read commentators on this, many point out that there is a wood indigenous to that area, the acacia wood, that actually is useful in desalinating water. It, it soaks up the salt somehow. Now, I'm fine if, if you kind of want to study some of the, the naturalistic explanations for things we're reading about here. We're going we're gonna to read about quail in a minute who actually do migrate through that part of the world. And so uh, if, if in God's providence he has migratory quail happen to show up right at the right time, just, just as long as you understand that the words natural and supernatural are not a thing for God. Okay, there's no difference to him. He, he, can, he can part the waters of the sea with a word or with the wind. It's all alike to him. Anyway, the water is now sweet, and they drink. And this scene, which is going to repeat itself, provides a, a teaching moment. That's what we see there in verse 25. Moses says, God made for them a statute and a rule like key words here, and there he tested them. He tested them. So the whole situation was set up by God as a test. Now, what does that mean that God tests us? We see here that it means he, he brings us into difficult situations which call for trust and endurance and obedience which would show that our trust is real. So you and I can say, I, I trust God, but then we get sick, or a loved one gets sick, or we get retrenched, a dating relationship dissolves. It isn't that trusting God fundamentally changes in those times. It's still the same thing but it requires a new level of intensity, doesn't it? So God brings trial to test us. Now, lest we think that's just an Old Testament sort of phenomenon, listen to the words of 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God wants to reveal the tested genuineness of your faith and mine. And he wants to help it grow stronger. It's so fascinating to me that this first scene ends up not at Merah, but at Elam where there are, there are 12 springs of water, one for every tribe. So they're, they're sitting down with plenty of water, thinking about what just happened and what God had said. If you will diligently listen to my voice, if you'll do what's right in my eyes, if you'll give ear to my commandments, keep my statutes, I'll put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. This is the key lesson here. Don't focus on your circumstances. Focusing, focus on listening to God and obeying God. That's what obedience looks like. 
And he makes them that promise there in verse 26, that the diseases he put on the Egyptians, he will not put on them. So he's referring to the ten plagues there, but essentially the ones that strike the body. And he says he'll basically keep them physically well in the wilderness. Now, I don't have time to camp out here and think about the Old Testament promises of health, though perhaps in a day of health and wealth preaching in many places, it would be worth doing that. Uh, Let me briefly make the point that you cannot read the Bible taking promises to other people, taking promises that were made to other people and immediately applying them to yourself. Uh, It doesn't work that way. So God sustaining the physical health of his people in the wilderness doesn't mean that he will cure your cancer any more than it means you should throw a log in the Singapore River and then go and start drinking it. So scene one here, and it's raised this question, will you obey God, specifically when you lack something, when you have insufficient resources for the task at hand? Will you listen to him? Will you obey him? Or will you grumble? All right, that's point number one, the testing of obedience. Let's press on and think secondly about the testing of trust. And for this, we're looking at chapter 16. Let me read it in its entirety. Buckle up. Here we go. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there on the face of the wilderness, a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? 
for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. And they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that you may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is the tenth part of an ephah. A new crisis, this time not water, food. They've presumably filled up all their water tanks, but now the food stores have been depleted. Uh, Verse 3, if you look back there, it's a kind of summary of the conversations that would have been happening, the attitude of the people. We picture them passing around this sentiment to one another. We sat and ate pots of meat and bread to the full in Egypt. Now, does this sound like what they were saying when they were in Egypt? You know, I was thinking about the way we talk about the good old days. I think any of us who are middle-aged and beyond have started to recognize that our memory of the past is quite selective, right? The good old days may not have been that good in some ways, Well, their memory here is certainly not the way their crying out to the Lord was described during their time of slavery. And notice that the grumbling 
which we saw in the previous passage, is it's now becoming an ingrained habit for them. I was thinking about an easy application for us here is to think about our own words. Do you find it easier to, to verbalize thanksgiving for God's providence or complaining about a temporary problem? Complaining at its root indicates a lack of trust, an inability to do what Paul commands us to do, which is to give thanks in all circumstances. So, beloved, work on being grateful, not a complainer. But this long section that we have here is about the Lord's provision, isn't it? Uh, He announces it by calling all the people together and saying, Come near to the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Verse 9. Now, we might wonder, I mean, this could be a precursor to God's wrath being poured out on the people. But incredibly, it's about his graciousness. Look how gracious and forgiving he is here. Verse 12, he says that he's going to solve the problem immediately with meat that night, and then bread for the morning breakfast. You'll be filled with bread, it says. Now, we, we wonder what kind of looks would have been exchanged between the people. I mean, they're, they're looking around. There's no meat. There's no bread. We wonder how confident Moses was. But verse 13, quail come up and cover the camp. And then the next day, the morning dew lifts to reveal a fine flake-like thing on the ground. And when they say that, the name manna just comes from Hebrew manhu. It kind of becomes manna over time, manna. It just means what is it because they don't know what it is. Now, I want to make four observations about God's provision from what we read here. So four observations. What do we learn about God's provision? Number one. Provision is daily. Provision is daily. So so manna is literally daily bread. Came up daily as the provision for that day, and and God trains them to accept it as the provision for that day. You can see there in verse 19, he actually strictly commands them not to keep any of it to the next day. Uh, This is the first manna command they break. Moses gets angry at them. And as we read in the the last verse of the whole chapter, this is how God fed them every day for 40 years till they come to the promised land. Now, when, when Jesus tells us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, he's not saying that there there will never be Christians who have more than a day's resources saved. Of course the Lord knew that. It's not contradicting what the Proverbs will say about the wisdom of saving money for the future. But I I do think it's worth asking ourselves who, who live in such an affluent age whether we've forgotten God's daily provision, whether we've forgotten to be thankful for our daily bread. If you and I are going to be content We're going to have to learn to be thankful for what we have today and not worry about tomorrow. So that's number one. Provision is daily. The second thing is provision is proportional. Provision is proportional. Did you notice that? We're supposed to, they're supposed to gather an omer each. It's about a gallon, uh, two 
little more than two liters, according to the number of people in their tent. So some gather more, some less. Verse 17 and 18 say that. This basic principle of proportionality is similar to what we see in the early church, where trust in God's provision led to a radical sharing of resources, didn't it? Here, as God provides manna, this was enforced. As we see it in the book of Acts, in the early church, it was a completely voluntary thing. Christian communities should be places of radical sharing because Christians understand that everything we have is a stewardship from God. So viewing yourself that way, viewing yourself as a steward, will be revolutionary to you in helping connect you to other people, fight anxiety in your life, and unleash the joy of sacrificial giving to the poor, to the church, to the work of missions. So provision is daily. Provision is proportional. Notice third, that provision enables rest. Provision enables rest. Verse 22 begins the instructions on the Sabbath. God calls it there a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. The word Sabbath has its root in the idea of just ceasing from work, stopping, resting. It harkens back to the the creation account where God worked for six days and then rested on the seventh. He invites us into his rest. And we can see how these two ideas are interconnected, can't we? Because God provides daily bread, because it's proportional, it's enough, we can stop for a day. We can trust him for enough on the sixth day for the seventh. Now, in my view, the Sabbath in the Old Testament is not the same thing as the Lord's Day that we read about in the New Testament. For one, it's on Sunday in the New Testament, not on Saturday. And for another, we're not bound by Old Testament Sabbath laws. But this one in seven rhythm of resting to worship is a powerful statement that we trust God to provide for us. Uh, This Sabbath day for them was creating the space that would later be filled in by the instructions of what to do for the worship of the tabernacle. And we see here, again, they they don't obey it. Uh, They go out to work on the Sabbath. Uh, Friend, I just want to say to you, realize that when you cease working, whether it's at the end of a work day or whether it's on Sunday at the end of a week, you're saying that you trust the Lord. It's a profound statement that you make. So provision enables rest. A fourth thing we see about provision is that provision must be remembered. It must be remembered. Verse 31, and following call for the keeping of this jar of manna in the Ark of the Covenant. So there when verse 34 says, Aaron placed it before the testimony, uh, that means in front of the the tablets uh, of stone with the Ten Commandments that were kept in the Ark of the Covenant. These are not built yet, but verse 34 there is an editorial comment by Moses, reminds us that he's writing all of this later. And let me just note for reference when verse 31 says, the taste of the manna was like wafers made with honey. How many of us have wondered, what did it taste like? 
This may not mean very much to you and I who have a thousand different food choices, right? But in an age when they didn't have refined sugar, to have honey, which was exceedingly rare to put on food, that's kind of the apex of making things taste good. I don't know exactly where to go with this, but I just want to notice that when God makes flatbread, he makes it taste good. I think there's actually a lot of theology for us to consider in that. Certainly how good God is to his people. But our point here is that they have a need to remember God's provision because it's so easy to forget. Now let's tie all of that together. Provision is daily. Provision is proportional. Provision enables rest. Provision must be remembered. Why wouldn't we trust a God like this? Well, the testing of our obedience that we thought about in the first point and the testing of our trust exposes a deeper root. So let's consider our third and final point, the testing of our hearts, and pick up the narrative in chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Moses' hands grew weird, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The testing of our hearts. We began at Merah, and the wilderness of sin. We end here at Rephidim as we move south towards Sinai. And we're feeling the repetition, aren't we, here? 
another struggle with water, before we're overly harsh on the people, remember that people in a desert climate running low on water are desperate. Uh, They probably aren't thinking very rationally. But still, the earlier provision of water and food should have helped them trust, should have helped them obey. Instead, they again turn on Moses in a a grumbling born of fear. And interestingly, in verse 2 there, Moses said that what they're actually doing is testing the Lord. What he means is that Israel knows by now about God's provision. They're regularly experiencing the miraculous. But it isn't coming in the way that they want. God isn't giving them what they want when they want it, when they feel like they need it. So they test God, saying, is he among us or not? Prove yourself, God. Testing God means putting him on trial, trying to force him to prove himself. God, if you're really there, if you really love me, then fill in the blank. Now the reader might wonder, what's the difference between God testing us and us testing God? And the answer is in the distinction between the creator and the created, who we are and who he is. We're the creature, we're we're fickle, we're changeable, we're unholy. We need to be tested and tried. We need to prove ourselves in a sense. God is the eternal creator. He doesn't change. His word is true and reliable. We don't need to test him. He he doesn't need a test. But if this still feels unfair to you, uh, just think of it this way. So so secondary school students here, just just try this the next time your your teacher schedules a test. Just go in and walk up to the front and say, teacher, I'd like to balance out this relationship a little bit. You've been giving me tests all semester long. I've got a test for you today. Try that out. You, you can tell them it's a, an experiment from Grace Baptist Church. No, don't, don't tell them that. <laughs> don't tell them that. I, it would be deeply insulting and ridiculous for you to do that. Why? Well, because it's in the nature of teachers to test students, not the other way around. What's infinitely more so with God? We do not test him. And I think we should see a progression here. Uh, The people grumble at Merah. They expand on that grumbling. They actually take God's name in vain, saying, would that we had died at the hand of the Lord. Just incredibly blasphemous words there in the wilderness of sin. Well, here Moses says that they're on the verge of insurrection. They're ready to stone their leader. What's being exposed, I think, is the condition of their hearts. Later on in in Deuteronomy 8, Moses will reflect on this. This is what he says in Deuteronomy 8.2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness, these 40 years, to humble you, to test you, in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. This is the culmination of the test of obedience, the test of trust. It's a test of the heart. The condition of their hearts is being revealed 
by their trials. And, and beloved, it's the same in our lives, isn't it? When we respond to trials with continued trust in God, continued obedience to His Word, our hearts are being exposed for good. It doesn't mean that we're glad for the trial in the moment. We're not glad for physical ailments or relational struggles or career setbacks or battles with indwelling sin. But, beloved, realize that your perseverance through them is a sign that you have a heart for God. That should encourage you. Or in the words of 1 Peter, though you haven't seen him, you love him. That you believe in the midst of hardship that God is still good, that he's still loving, that he will care for you. Why should they have known that? Well, for one, notice what he's doing here. Again, again he comes not in judgment, striking them dead. Instead, he, he seems to be in teaching mode. He, he tells Moses to pass before the people with some of the elders of Israel, there in verse 5. So he wants this to be a clear and public teaching moment. God tells Moses to take the staff and then to strike the rock and water will come out of it. And that, that's what he does. And I want you to track the action here because it's so interesting. Verse 7 is an editorial comment that they named the place Masa and Meribah, meaning quarreling or contention. Well, that's just a parenthesis. The next verse, so, so maybe a brief time lapse as we, we see them drinking water, but, but no sooner do they drink and maybe replenish their supplies, then who, who's that on the horizon? Seems like there are people gathered. It's the Amalekites, a dreaded warlike people. The Amalekites are, are descendants of, of Esau. Uh, they basically would, would travel around looking for people to prey on, to attack. And, and they've chosen a, a vulnerable moment to attack Israel. I wonder if anybody, any of us have said something like, when it rains, it pours. It seems like an apt thing to say in Singapore because it's raining all the time. But, but do you feel like that sometimes in your life? One thing after the other? How would they have felt here? This could have been the straw that broke the camel's back. But it wasn't. Notice. Moses turns to the young man he's grooming for leadership, Joshua. Tells him to choose men for the battle, which must be joined on the, on the morrow. And he goes up to the top of the hill, the break of day, with the staff that parted the Red Sea, the staff that he struck the rock with. And his plan is to hold that staff up to the Lord. I don't know whether the people of Israel are learning, but I think Moses is learning. That's his plan. And as the battle begins, as long as that staff is up high, they're winning. But as his arms start to tire, you can actually see the effect on the battlefield below. They start to lose. And so maybe in a, in a precursor to the, the idea of shared leadership that we're going to think about next week even more in chapter 18, Aaron and her come alongside to hold up the arms of their leader. Our final scene of the, the chapter there closes with worship. 
as Moses builds an altar to worship God, who is their banner, the one who assures their victory, even as our first scene proclaimed God to be their healer. Beloved, where is your heart towards God this morning? Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, which is the wellspring of life. Do you have a heart that trusts God, that wants to obey Him because you love Him? And these events may seem far for us. We have water. We have food. We don't feel a physical enemy bearing down on us, perhaps. But we're no less needy. We're no less anxious. We're no less burdened. And we who live in the fullness of time have all the more reason to trust him, don't we? Because you and I know what all this points to. When Jesus came, he said what? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of him, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that came down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And then there are those curious words that we read in chapter 17, verse 6, where God said he will stand before Moses on the rock, which Moses is about to strike. Paul later comments, even as we read earlier in the service, that the, the spiritual rock that they drank from was Christ. He was struck. He was killed so that you and I could drink the waters of eternal life. It's Jesus that defeats our greatest enemies, not the Amalekites, but sin and Satan and death itself. So what do we have here in this marvelous text this morning? An altering of expectations? Perhaps, for many of us, they need altering. But more than that, we have the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the living water, the bread of life, and the rock on which we stand. Listen and obey him. Trust him. Give him your heart. God tests his people for their good and his glory. Let's pray together.